president and founder of Health Freedom Defense Fund, here today to bring you conversations on health freedom. And today I am delighted to welcome a really um, wonderful guest, someone who's had an illustrious career in the corporate world, but who put her principles first and decided that she would leave rather than succumb to the mob, essentially. Her name is Jennifer Say. She used to work for Levi's. I'm going to let her tell her herself tell us a little bit about herself. But thank you so much for being here with us today, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I worked at Levi's for close to 23 years, so a really, really long time. <laughs> All the way climbing up that ladder. You know, I started as an entry level marketing assistant, and I ended my career there as the brand president. But the last two years were. Um, I would say pretty fraught with conflict. Uh, I was outspoken about school closures uh, during during COVID, and uh, right from the beginning, from March thirteenth, two thousand twenty, I started. Um, I had focused mostly on school closures, but I was outspoken about all the restrictions to children. Uh, so we had playgrounds closed in San Francisco, outdoor playgrounds for almost ten months. Uh, beaches were closed to surfing, basketball hoops, so basically any way that kids could get physical activity outside. And of course, the masking of very young children. Um, I shied away from certain topics, though I did have strong opinions on those as well, and we can talk about that. But I, my emphasis and focus was on children. And um, I was told repeatedly over the course of two years that I really needed to stop, but I didn't. And then eventually in January of 2022, I was told there wouldn't be a place for me at the company anymore. And I did not accept the severance offered me, which was significant, a million dollars, because I did not want to sign a non-disclosure agreement about the terms of the quote unquote separation, uh, because the terms were I was pushed out for speaking my mind and I didn't want to not be able to talk about that. So I resigned very publicly instead in bridge burning fashion <laughs> and um, probably lit a match forever on any sort of corporate career again, which is probably okay. Uh, but I just felt, you know, in addition to being alarmed by the restrictions and everything that happened and the harms, the catastrophic harms caused by lockdowns and school closures during COVID, I became increasingly alarmed as I had this two-year battle about the censorship and the restriction to speech. And I felt like I was not going to stay quiet on that. That would be uh, at odds with everything that I believe in. And so um, so I quit without the severance. And now I'm here talking to you. So Jennifer, um, we have similar backgrounds that we both worked in the corporate world and experienced all that that has to offer and and takes from us. Um, in my experience, it it sucks a lot of life out of you. <clears throat> At least it did in the banking world. And I don't know, maybe in a, it's a different pace in a um, clothing line. I don't, I don't know. I can only speculate on that. But what I'm wondering is why um, why did they fire you? It was specifically because you were speaking out. It wasn't because you refused to take um, the shot. It wasn't over a mandate or something like that. It was specifically because you were speaking out against the diktats of the regime, essentially. Yep, that's it. Um, <laughs> you got it. I wasn't technically fired. I was offered severance and then rather than accept it, I resigned. So 
for legal reasons. I'll, I'll just be clear about that. Okay. Um, I, you know, but I was ousted from the company. I mean, essentially I was a candidate, probably the primary candidate for CEO after my 23 years at the company, um, in a really prominent and visible role had been doing a great job. In fact, I was promoted during the two-year period where we were having this conflict because we were emerging in such a strong way. The business um, from lockdowns, uh, the stock price doubled since I had, you know, taken uh, over as brand president. So, you know, it's not that I was not performing the requirements of my job to a very, at a very high level. I was. It was literally because I pushed back on these public, I hate to even call them public health policies because they had nothing to do with health. That's Um, why I call them diktats because it's all Yeah, no, that's that's more correct. Um, But yeah, because I pushed back, you know, with the most emphasis on school closures and stated and restated over and over that this would be harmful to children, which of course is what we've seen. And I started early when it was very unpopular. I mean, it's still relatively unpopular, but at least now we can agree that the school closures were harmful. And by the fall of 2020, and this is what really sort of set me on fire, you know, the 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 private schools opened in San Francisco and in most cities and states across the country. And so most of my peers, all of my peers sent their kids back to school. And yet they were saying, you can't talk about this. You can't advocate for the same thing our children have. My kids were in public school and they had been. Um, I have two older, two graduated from San Francisco public schools, two are much younger. And, you know, they're saying this in the midst of everybody screaming about equality because this is right after the summer of 2020, you know, when everybody, every company on earth is saying we need to fight for equality. And yet, you know, denying that to low income students in San Francisco and other public school systems across the country. 25 million public school students were out of school for more than a year. Yeah. I mean, it's astonishing. And to say point blank, you're not wrong, but you can't say it because people don't like it, which is essentially what they were saying to me. No, (laughs) I I couldn't abide by that. Yeah, no, it's crazy, isn't it? So I've read your Substack, and I haven't read your book yet, but I've read your Substack, and I've read, um, you know, much of what you've written and st- and background on you and everything. And what I'm really curious about is, well, we, whether we like it or not, COVID has become partisan. I'm, yes. I'm not. Um, I don't consider myself either. I was a hardcore Democrat for most of my adult life until right after the 2008 election, literally the first week of the inauguration, I realized that I'd been sold a bill of goods by President Obama. And I realized that I was buying into the whole partisan divide and that it was actually a complete illusion that we were being played off of each other. And so I walked away from it. And the reason I'm sharing this is because it may not be something we want to talk about, but there's no doubt that 90% of Democrats have bought into this and most of the people who question all this are people who lean more to the right or are more conservative. You on your own blog post say that you were a Democrat lifelong as well, and that you um, that you don't consider yourself that either anymore. But we're talking March of 2020. What made you realize that there was something 
awry with this whole narrative and all the policies that are being promulgated by not only the federal, but state governments? I think there were two things. First, it was just wrong to deny people of their rights to move freely, to congregate, to isolate us, to go to work and to make a living, to run a business. It was just wrong. And it became more and more hypocritical as we moved through the two-year period because you had big box stores opening, but you know smaller stores couldn't. And you had private school kids in school, but public schools couldn't. And it just it was just so riddled with hypocrisy and it was just wrong. You can't deny, you can't isolate people like that and not have horrific, catastrophic, adverse outcomes. That's the first thing. Um, and you can't do it because we have rights in this country that say you can't do it. Um, so that was the first thing is just the sheer wrongness of it. The but second that didn't was- affect other people. So no, why? it did. And I'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> the second was that it was going to be ineffective. And that seemed clear. So even if you thought it was wrong, but it would work, I mean, maybe you could wrap your head around that. I couldn't. It was so clear to me that it was it was it was going to be ineffective and that the, you know, uh, death rates were being inflated. I was reading the data like a crazy person, you know, everything I could get my hands on. Um, I was, you know, keeping myself informed. It was very clear that children were at little to no risk from the very beginning. They were less likely to spread. It was very clear from the pre-pandemic playbook that the CDC itself had written that schools should never close more than a handful of weeks, even for fatality rates much higher than COVID. Um, And so it just seemed clear to me that making people stay home was like stepping on a garden hose. And the minute you kind of took your foot off, the water would just, so what are we supposed to do? Just stay home forever. That doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. And besides that's also wrong. And we're seeing how that plays out now in China. You know, when you sort of go for the zero COVID policy, it's, it's such a violation of our civil rights. And then what became increasingly alarming was the censorship. Um, anyone who spoke out against it or pushed back against it or dared protest um, was vilified, demonized. I mean, Berkeley students, which is where my son went, where there were police guards outside the dorm rooms. They couldn't leave except to get a COVID test. I mean, is this America? It's just astonishing to me. So there was the wrongness plus the ineffectiveness combined um, that just set off alarm bells for me. Now, why didn't others? I think that's the question of the decade or of my lifetime. And I think it's because I'd be curious to hear what you think. Um, It's, it, it's like you have to buy into this. It was the Democratic Party platform and it's this belief system. And if you veer even one tiny step or ask a question, you are ousted entirely. And you are then demonized as a far right QAnon conspiracy theorist lunatic for just going, hey, wait a minute. Might there be another way? Like all you do. I mean, I was so diplomatic. This is just, you know, as a woman in the corporate world, you sort of train that diplomatic voice. I wasn't yelling at people. I I was very diplomatic in how I posted on social media. I wrote op-eds. I led rallies. I was on local television and then ultimately um, some national programs. But it was like, you know, I was instantly cast as a racist, which is 
a pretty unemployable thing to call a person. You know, nobody wants to have a racist as their head of the brand, <laughs> um, a eugenicist. I was anti-trans, like all these things that weren't even related because if you step outside the orthodoxy, one teeny tiny step, then you are, you are, you're a heretic. It's religious, you know, and it was billed as, and people bought it, if you believe in these things, you are a virtuous good person. And all of these other people are not only unvirtuous, they are evil and they are harmful to society. And there was no care for any of us as individuals, the children being harmed, the people suffering alone in the hospitals. It was grotesque and cruel to me. And I just couldn't understand how we were collectively, not me, but willing to treat people in such inhumane ways and feel good about it, feel like the good people. It was just so astonishing to me. And so it was the Democratic Party that advocated so vociferously for these policies and demonized anyone on the right or even not on the right that went against them. And so, yeah, I, I walked away. I mean, I, I don't have a party affiliation now. I would just call myself unaffiliated. <laughs> yeah. So what about like, are you into natural health? Are you into holistic? I mean, would you have considered yourself a super mainstream person before? Or was there already a little crack in the door that you maybe were open to? Because it seems to me that the more conventionally minded you were, and the more you believed in big government, then the easier it was to fall for this hook, line, and sinker. But if you had any kind of point of reference from which you might question, say, chemotherapy or radiation for cancer, or you might, I mean, I've, I have a long history because, you know, I made a documentary on vaccines over 10 years ago. And so I've been sort of challenging and questioning things. And I've been labeled a conspiracy theorist and a nut job and a flat earther. And right. you get other, over it though, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> now I just, I'm like, whatever. I mean, I couldn't care less. I just think to myself, yeah, okay, go ahead. I mean, I've been smeared by the New York times and censored by Sundance and, it's, it's crazy what's happened, but I'm still always looking for what the key is for most people yeah. because the people around me with whom I was speaking early on, um, especially my left-leaning friends, they didn't want to have any kind of conversation about this. But as the months wore on, then I started getting phone calls. Hey, Les, what's really happening? Right. What's really going on? Because this doesn't make any sense. And yeah. so- I never got those calls- I'm wondering what the orientation was, though, in early mid-March when this all started coming down. Had there already been the door cracked for you in some way? Did you? I, I guess I would put it a little bit differently in that I had had this experience. So I was an elite gymnast as a child, okay. and it's an incredibly cruel and abusive training environment. Um, I was, you know, at the highest level. I won the. Uh, I was national champion in 1986, and you know, after I walked away from the sport, I suffered for many years because of the abusive coaching coaching culture. But no one talked about it. Now everybody sort of accepts it because we had the case of Dr. Larry Nasser, who was sexually abusing hundreds and hundreds of young women. Yeah. Um, but I wrote a book about it. This is before Nasser, that story broke. I wrote a book in 2008 about my personal experience. And it was the first first person experience to say what it's really like. Mm -hmm. I thought everyone knew, right? Like we all we all, at least my peers in the sport, it's not like we didn't talk about it, you know, but I didn't realize it was a secret that we were supposed to keep because somehow I'm naive. I thought I was 
exposing something to the world that was known within the community, but somehow accepted. I mean, I knew it would be a little controversial. I didn't know how controversial. So this is a microcosmic world, right? It's a tiny world of gymnastics and, and more broadly the Olympic movement, because we now see there's abuses across the sports. Um, but I was absolutely dragged across the internet and in real life for, for saying the things I said, you know, threatened with lawsuits and violence and called every terrible name because I dared to say what we all knew, which is these Olympic level coaches, some of them, one in particular, sexually abused athletes for decades. Um, famous coaches were emotionally and physically abusing um, athletes, but that was not allowed. And it took everybody in the sport just you're a liar, you're a grifter, you were a crappy gymnast, what that has to do with it at 40, I was 40, <laughs> I don't know. And it took 10 years, and the Larry Nasser case breaking for everybody to say, okay, she spoke the truth. But I had that in my background, you know, I, it was like, I saw this thing, I experienced it, and I spoke about it because I felt that it was so important because children were being harmed. And I guess for me, that was kind of the seed. And in, in, in my experience in the sport, you know, I know that children, when they're abused, they won't speak up, right? They're just trying to shield themselves from abuse and, and they're obedient and they want to please, they think it's their fault. They want to please the abuser. And so as I watched people saying, my kids are fine. My kids love it. My kids love wearing three masks and staying home all day by themselves. I was like, no, they don't. They don't. Can I say, Jennifer, it sounds to me like you had been othered. Yeah. I right. You'd right. already been othered in your life and you knew what that felt like. And you knew the way that the machine worked as well to attempt right. to silence you for saying something that must not be said. That's right. So once you've been through that experience, you understand how coordinated the media can be, how much coordination there is between the media and government, which we've realized in full force in the last couple of years. It's now been completely outed, but this has been going on for a long time. But when you've gone through something like that, yes. you're more, I guess you're just more attuned to these kinds of injustices, but you're also attuned to the, um, to the very the twisted tactics. and the tactics, but also, I'm sorry, but you're just you're more skeptical and you understand that these powers and these people are actually very cynical, malicious actors. They're not benign. They're not reporting. They're not, they're pushing that's, something. And yes, once that's, you've seen that, then it's easy for me. It was vaccines. I started to realize yeah. I heard about it over 20 years ago and I started digging into it and I was like, gosh, you don't say well, this can't be. But as you go deeper and deeper, you see that. And once you see that one world so very clearly, you can then see it is a microcosm for everything else out in the world. And so your experience I think that's right. really is relevant. And, and you know, it was a small world, but I think it's important to note there were very significant powers involved in this, the US Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, the press was complicit in reporting on the image that USAG and USOC wanted. There were glowing pieces written about the Carolis who were systematically abusing their athletes by major publications. You know, they were his PR arm, yeah. um, this incredibly abusive Romanian coach. You had the FBI failing to investigate reported cases of sexual abuse because it might ruin 
you know, your Olympic viewing pleasure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was very skeptical and I also understood we were willing to collectively somehow sacrifice children mm. for adult reputations, um, for adult financial gain. And I also understood, and I think this is important, you alluded to this for yourself, I knew I could withstand whatever they called me. I knew that I wasn't those things and you could call me whatever you want, but I know who I am. You don't get to decide. You can call me a racist. It's not true. So you're not going to hurt me. I've been now in the last, um, we filed a lawsuit against one of the local towns um, near where I live for their mask mandate. And we talked about how ever since the Nuremberg Code and the Nuremberg Trials, that the idea that you don't experiment on human beings has been anathema to all human beings. And that, you know, that that's the lesson that we all take from the Nazis. Well, I was called an anti-Semite by a city council person in the city of Ketchum named Amanda Breen for, and she refused to to retract it as well. And I know her, she knows darn well that I'm not an anti-Semite. I mean, um, anyway, it's just ridiculous. You know, some of my best friends in the whole world are Jewish. My father's oldest and best friend of over 40 years, they're Jewish. I mean, you know, I've almost married a Jew once. I mean, I grew up with them. Like I'm as far from an anti-Semite as you can get, but they just say these things and they don't care. They don't care about the ramifications. They care about eyeballs. They care about furthering their narrative and agenda and that's it. And they don't care who the collateral damage is, you know? And, and they- if you're someone who's strong and outspoken, they will do what they can in order to take you down. That's right. And I I really honestly believe the primary goal of those sorts of um, teardowns and that horrible name calling, it's to keep other people silent. A hundred percent. That's the primary goal. And, you know, that's certainly what happens. You know, if I if I take my outspokenness on schools, I mean, San Francisco, San Franciscans were silent on the matter. You know, my husband and I led rallies that were very sparsely attended But on February 15th, 2022, three members of the school board were recalled for failing to open the schools. And they were recalled by like a huge margin. 75% of those that showed up to vote voted to recall. They agreed with me that this was wrong, but they were too afraid of basically subjecting themselves to what I subjected myself to. Who You can't, and, and, and many people, you know, I could risk it. I could afford it. You know, I'll admit, I, I knew that if the worst happened, I would be okay and I would get through it. And I, I don't fault people who can't, who are just trying to hold on to a job. But wouldn't it be something if they'd all spoken up, we would have had a very different conversation on this. And we would have been the majority, which has sort of been my message is you've got to say something and you've got to support your neighbor's right to it, even if you don't agree with them. 100%. Because the only thing that protects speech is more speech. And, and, and so that's what's become, you know, so alarming. As far as the other issues, I will just say, I mean, even I self-censored, you know, I, I kept my advocacy to children. As I said, I didn't speak out as much on lockdowns. I didn't speak out on the vaccines. My company has a vaccine mandate still that they maintain. I, I don't know how evolved it is. Like, I don't know if they make you get five shots now or what, because I'm not paying attention anymore. But I was trying to, um, I, I don't know, I thought, I thought there would be some empathy around children and I could kind of 
get my foot in the door and maybe get people to see it. And I was trying to hold on to my job, frankly. I mean, I'm a breadwinner in my family. So I, I shied away from some of those issues. When I did speak out on other issues, like I spoke out on how wrong it was that doctors, well, the discrimination of vax mandates, I did speak out about that, um, particularly for students and schools. And I spoke out about, I'm sure you remember in the fall of 2021, all these doctors were saying, we're not going to treat the unvaccinated. And I, I spoke about that as well as a clear violation of the Hippocratic Oath. And I was um, I was told to take those, those uh, social media posts down. Yeah. I was also told I should not speak about um, the recall of Governor Gavin Newsom, that recall election, which is a clear... Um, you know, censoring political speech and it's viewpoint discrimination. Yeah. The way that I, I think about all of this stuff is that it would have never been possible if it weren't for social media and cancel culture, right? Social media got us all into this online digital public square. And then the public shaming that happens on digital media and this whole cancel culture that's really evolved in the last 10 to 15 years has been so profound in what it's done. It's it's had a truly chilling effect on on speech, and it's um, I think it's possibly the most pernicious aspect of big tech that we see is this tendency of people to self censor because they are afraid of being shamed by the mob, and it's in partic- it's particularly difficult if you live in a small town. Let me tell you, I live in a small town, but you know at the end of the day. I have some friends who've been in the health freedom movement for a long time and who are physicians who've lost their jobs and their countries over their um, their views and their science, their science, not their views, the science they've done. Yeah. They've lost everything for it. And I just, I'll, what I do is I hold in my heart what some of them have said to me. One of my friends is a guy named Dr. Andrew Wakefield, Andy Wakefield, and he lost his country, Britain, um, and his medical license because he dared to publish research which was self-reported by parents that their children regressed into autism after the MMR shot. And he said to me, you know, Leslie, once they've taken everything from you, you have nothing else to live, lose, and then you're fearless. And so that's what I always just try and hold in my heart. And that, you know, I don't really care. I'm like you, I don't have to worry. Um, I'm in a sort of safer position than the average person who's really trying to make ends meet and all that. But at the end of the day, we either all stand up or else we're all going down. And the G20 Bali declaration is proof of that. We're going to have central bank digital currencies connected to our digital IDs, connected to our digital vaccine passports, which will be required to travel. You won't be able to go anywhere, do anything. They're going to control the food that we can eat. Um, you know, there are other aspects to it. But the point is, it's all interoperable. It's yeah. global. It's 170 some countries that have signed on to this. And listen, it can't be only those of us who are in a position to not really suffer yeah. that we can't be the only ones who stand up. The only way that's going to, um, we're going to resist this incredible power grab, which is what it is, right? It's an attempt to, uh, to install a digital authoritarian state on all of us is if everybody stands together and holds hands, that's it. We link arms and we stand unified in defense of freedom and medical privacy and the right to travel and individual liberty. Congregate and yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I I agree. And I agree with your prior statement from your friend, Dr. Wakefield. Um, I there's not really anything else they can take. I'm free. I'm a free agent. They can't take my job. Fine, come for me. I lost 
all my colleagues, you know, I knew thousands of people there that I'd known for many, many years. Um, I've lost some family members who won't, you know, speak to me because they find my views so abhorrent. Mm-hmm. Um, so why I'm not stopping now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you it's just a, a new community, though, too, as well. I did. Well, Aren't first of all, linings. Tell us about your silver linings. I will. Well, first of all, I have an amazing husband who stood with me and by me and been incredibly outspoken the entire time. And I should mention, um, he this is quite alarming as well, because it's not just that you're held accountable for the I won't call it accountable. It's not just that you're targeted for the things that you say. I got in a whole heap of trouble for things my husband was saying as well. And I was repeatedly um, questioned about his views at work. I was made to do an apology tour at work and answer questions about, I did not apologize. I explained myself, Um, but I was, I was asked questions about him and his views as well. My answer was simply, he doesn't work here, you know? He is, I support his What was the say. justification? What were these people thinking? The justification to make you go and do an apology tour? I mean, what what were they intending you to apologize for? That you had a different viewpoint than other people? I mean, this is just- That I had a different, shocking. yeah, it's, it is. It's completely shocking. Um, I agreed only because I knew that I was not going to apologize. I was going to explain myself and why I held the view that I did about what was going on. Um, and I did not apologize. I explained myself. Um, they, there were so many employee complaints. Well, you know what? I don't actually want to grant that. There were some. I don't even think it was that many. I think it's a very vocal and punitive minority and people can't handle it rather than just say, which is what I think the CEO should have done from the start and just ended the whole thing. Look, she's a mom. She's a private citizen. You don't have to agree with her. She can say what she wants. Her kids are in public school. That's enough. We're not talking about this anymore. But, you know, his advisors were hysterical about it, that employees were complaining and the Twitter mob was starting to kind of ratchet up their attacks. It had no effect on the business at all. Um, and they don't want to deal with it. And and frankly, they bought in to this orthodoxy and believed what I was saying was not just wrong, but evil. You know, they had bought into that. Um, I also had was asked to apologize and did not because I dared to appear on Fox to talk about these views. I was on the Laura Ingram show in March of 2021. And Folks acknowledged that there was nothing wrong with what I said, but it was who I said it to. So you are, you know, guilty by association, who you talk to. They didn't want you on Laura Ingram. Yes, because she is a bad, terrible person, according to them. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, having been on the left and having actually subscribed to a lot of those viewpoints, you listen to a lot of the pundits. I mean, I, I personally think the left and the right, they both do the same thing. They other the other side. They do. I agree. In, in order to get their viewers, their followers to it, it dehumanizes, right? When we de, when we dehumanize another human being, it's easy to not have compassion, not That's appreciate right. their viewpoint, not understand that they might have a different life experience or anything like that. And so I think it's it's their tactic and it's a well-known and well-worn tactic and both sides use it equally well. Right? I agree with that, which is why I, I haven't the run left to the left is doing it worse in the last I, couple of years, but I do too. 
I agree. I, I, and that's why I haven't run to the other side either. But, you know, I'm often asked, why are you doing all this right wing media? You know what? I will talk to anyone that will give me a platform to tell the story that will allow me to speak up and encourage others to do so. I don't have to agree with every person I talk to on every single issue. The left won't hear out a person like me. They won't invite me on. They, 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 they won't have it. Yeah. You know, um, they don't want to talk about the harms that have been done because guess what? They, they did them. They made the decisions, you know, and, and the media furthered the propaganda that allowed governments and public health and teachers unions and everyone to do these terrible harms to, to children and, and, and the broader population. But the silver lining is I've met amazing people in the last two or three years. We come from all walks of life, um, all sides of the aisle, all religious affiliations, um, but share a willingness to kind of at, at often great personal costs, speak up in the face of injustice. And um, I think we all just appreciate each other and we're willing to disagree and not vilify each other because we disagree on some stuff. We agree on this, that this has been the most unjust, I, I don't even know how to put words to it, how we, an authoritarian wielding of power that I never thought would I would see in my lifetime you know I think the best way to term it is that um freedom isn't partisan and it shouldn't be and it's it's sad that we've gotten to a place in this country where it is um but the only people who are actually for the most part willing to listen and discuss these I these ideals um are those who are more of the libertarian right-wing conservative extraction, right? Yeah. And even what they, you know, they call them far right. Oh my gosh. Like, well, they are right. It's it, all right. All this stuff. It's so crazy. You know, having been involved in health freedom and exploring the vaccine issue beginning more than 20 years ago and starting to realize that we have not been told the truth about those products. And I'm actually a qualified homeopath as well. I left um, finance and became a, uh, trained in homeopathy and then made a documentary film and then started Health Freedom Defense Fund. And my point is that that journey helped me give, give me perspective that we're not being told the truth about mainstream medicine and that the problem isn't just that government doesn't have enough money. In fact, that's not the problem at all. It's that it's all siphoned off into all these pet projects and into these, their cronies back pockets. And I'm saying that of both sides, you know, yeah. I heard something from Andrew, um, judge Andrew Napolitano many, many years ago. He said that the, um, the two political parties are, what if they're just two wings of the same bird of prey? And I 100% believe that. I think that the, the two party system is literally the parasite sucking the blood out of the United States. I do. Um, look at it. It's just, it's, it's what everything it's, they control everything. Right. And anybody who, even within the party. Oh yeah. Politicians get elected and they just vote party lines. And if they don't, boy, do they get in trouble. Right. Then they run afoul of the rules and the leadership and all this. It's just, it's this beast that's controlling us, but I want to drill down a little bit more into your life specifically because you lost your job. But you lost your state. I, I imagine you lived in California most of your life. Is that right? Well, I was born in Pennsylvania and I grew up in, in Pennsylvania. Um, okay. But I moved to California to go to college when I was 19. And I never left. I never looked back. I loved it. 
Um, I went to Stanford and then I moved to San Francisco upon graduation. And, you know, so I moved there in 1992 and it was like such a lovely, weird place. I mean, I loved it. It was just sort of welcoming to weirdos. And I felt like a weirdo. I had such an unconventional childhood. You know, I didn't ever feel like I fit anywhere. I moved a lot as a kid because I kept gym hopping. Um, and so to be kind of welcomed to this place where, and this is the old San Francisco, <laughs> you could think what you think and be who you are and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, really at the forefront of gay civil rights and all of these issues and women's rights. And um, it just felt like home to me. It felt like the first place that ever felt like home. I mean, it's a huge loss, you know, but I go back and it's not the place I fell in love with. So then I just feel like I'm without a home. <laughs> so this is what I, this is what I wanted to have you explain for us is one of my views about what's going to happen in the coming 10 years is that we will self-segregate. We will self-isolate, you know, bifurcate into these two kinds of nations. There will be those places like California, Washington, and Oregon, and New York, and New Jersey, and Massachusetts, where um, the people who really believe in these policies and telling other people what to do will self-sort themselves. And the people who want to live in a freer um, uh, environment with individual responsibility and more of the kind of original American ideals, they will self-sort into these other places, you know, what has historically been flyover country. And then of course, Texas and Florida and places like that. And I really think that's going to happen. And in some ways, your story would suggest that that's happened with you, that you chose to leave because of something. And I'd love for you to explain to us what was that kind of tipping point for you? What changed in your world where you just thought that you needed to actually not just lose your job, but actually completely move to another state? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, really, we, we left California, San Francisco in February of 2021. We wanted to just go where the schools were open. We wanted to go where my younger children could go to school and not suffer in isolation. They could play sports. They could have play dates. Um, my older children were in college. They weren't, they weren't um, with me. And so, you know, I was, I was thinking primarily about, about my younger children. That's what prompted it. It was literally a very practical decision. You know, every place we looked, it was just, are the schools open? And, and frankly, that was a proxy for how open the state was as well, and a proxy for the attitudes in the state, you know? Um, and so that was it. We, 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 we called the school in Denver. They said, you can come Monday. We called on a Thursday. We got on a plane and we came, you know? But I will say, so that was the sort of practicals of the situation. But I had gotten to the point where I just could not be around the compliance anymore. They were begging in San Francisco for more restrictions. You know, when anything opened, there were outcries about how horrible and dangerous it was. Like they just, it, it's as if they were begging for more freedom to be taken away. And I just felt I now lived amongst strangers and, and not only strangers, but just inhumane cruelty yeah. because the only people 
that could survive under these circumstances were the very, very wealthy. And, you know, all these wealthy families who were saying schools need to be closed were in pods and had tutors for their children and had yards and all this stuff. And and I'm not trying to position myself. I mean, I, you know, I was an executive. I had money. I could do these things as well. That's not the community I want to live in, one that doesn't care for all of its citizens. And I just couldn't be around them anymore. They seemed all too willing to give up all freedom for safety, safety, but really for the feeling of being virtuous, I think even more than safety. Well, one virtuous, but I think it, the other thing is for me, it really gives me this, um, this, I guess it, it illustrated in a particularly graphic way, the whole concept of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Where these people were actually, you know, literally appreciating, loving, adulating their oppressors. They were okay with this. And not only that, they were cheering them on for more. And it's it's a very, very frightening place to live in. Yeah, it demonstrated two things for me. It sort of was the Milgram experiment writ large. They were willing to sort of inflict untold harms, just incredible cruelty on their fellow citizens, on children, on the elderly, on the ill, on everyone who can't bear isolation for two straight years. Um, if they were told that it was the right thing to do, you know, they were utterly obedient. And these are the people who are, you know, thinking of themselves as the resistance. These are the people putting hashtag resist in their, you know, social media bios. Um, and I also just came to understand that people would rather be with the group than be right. Yeah. They would rather stand with the group and have the cover of the group and feel like they fit in with the community than do the right thing. And I just couldn't stay in that community anymore. And while Colorado isn't perfect, and I certainly hear from people who are here that, you know, feel its imperfections, the degree to which it is better, and it was better when I got here, is hard to overstate. My child could go to school. His teachers hugged him. My daughter was in preschool. The kids played, you know, normally. Everything was open. Um, I mean, there were some restrictions. I don't want to say that it was perfect, but, and people just, it, there's a real kind of live and let live attitude here. I have friends that I've met that have all different views and political affiliations, and no one thinks I'm evil. They all know my story, and none of them think I'm evil. Mm -hmm. So it's been a good it's a good fit for us for now. I mean, I can imagine a time where I might go somewhere even freer and more committed to those <laughs> principles, but we really like it right now. Well, that's great. It's a, it's a nice place. So my big focus, I mean, Health Freedom Defense Fund are actually, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take a pause and open up. It's getting so dark in here. Okay. It's a storm is coming in. Let's see if that helps. A storm is coming in, and so our light is getting really bad. Um, okay, so my focus at Health Freedom Defense Fund is on educating people about their rights, and most importantly, about the philosophical principle of bodily autonomy. Americans, at least historically, have espoused and embraced the idea of um, free speech, 
but I think it was always just a given that we had the right to do with our bodies what we wanted to do with them and that no one could tell us that we were not the property of government. And as you know, having been involved in the whole health freedom arena for a long time, I've expected what has happened in the last few years. You could see that they were going to do this because there've been all these things that they put in place, legislation and other, um, other um, media initiatives and things like this in order to other those who ask questions about all different kinds of science and things like this, or choose not to vaccinate their kids or whatever it might be. And my, my point is that to me, I've come to a place where I think bodily autonomy is at the, the peak of what it means to be free. And I just want to know, how do you think about that? What do you, how do you, how, you know, how has the last two and a half years of experience changed your view? You, it doesn't sound like you were someone who was super concerned about bodily autonomy and health freedom um, beforehand. So I'm just wondering, how's it changed your worldview? How do you think about bodily autonomy? What do you think about these things? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it certainly wasn't, I mean, I assumed we had it to your point, you know, um, I didn't question vaccines. I also had friends that did and didn't vaccinate their children and I didn't care and that was fine. Um, but I, I guess, you know, I assumed I had it. I'd been pro-choice my whole life. There's nothing I've marched more for than, than a woman's right to choose. And I assumed that applied more broadly, that we would not ever be forced um, unwanted medical treatment. You know, I just didn't, I hadn't thought about it because I just assumed that that was a given to your point. Um, I certainly have, have um, changed my mind on that. And I will say, I was very much, you know, I got one shot of J&J. It was very much a coerced, quote unquote, decision. Um, it was mandated by the company and I did it. I was already in so much hot water already. And, you know, despite what they probably um, assumed was me not caring whether or not I lost my job, I did care. And I really wanted to try to keep it. It was a company I loved and felt very much a part of. And you know, I conceded that I took my one shot of J and J, which is probably not even enough now to have let me have kept my job. Um, so I, I do understand what it is to be, be coerced into medical treatment you do not want. I mean, I didn't want it. Um, so I'm hyper aware of it now. And I will say, you know, all the early rallies that my husband and I led to get the schools open and get kids normalcy, the folks that showed up were the people who had been advocating for health freedom for many, many years. So that's when my eyes started to open. Um, and one of the things I found so astonishing is in the Bay Area, you have a, a you had a vast contingent of what I would have called the hippie moms who didn't want to vaccinate their kids, who breastfed their children until they were like, you know, 10. What happened to them? It's amazing, isn't it? I know Where so- Where did they go? Yeah, I know so many people who were like that, who didn't ask questions. They didn't vaccinate their kids for other things, but they did for this. Yes. I, I mean, I just it's don't understand how if you've gotten to the point where you're able to question government and the narrative about the chickenpox vaccine or the measles vaccine, how or the can HPV. You not, yeah. Yes. How can you not question them about something that they know? that they that, literally rushed through in a matter of months. I just, that, it, it, it was the power, it beggars the mind. And it's the power of the propaganda and fear that was instilled. 
Um, and, and, and so and let's, let's be honest too. It was a highly sophisticated coordinated oh, yeah. operation. I wrote a piece um, about the weaponization of language and that is what really happened, right? All yeah. of the language, all of the tactics that they used, these were highly sophisticated coordinated efforts by intelligence, by the government, by health authorities, psychiatrists. In the UK, they actually had something called the nudge unit that was literally deploying these tactics against the populace in order to manipulate them into doing what they wanted them to do. And, you know, most people fall prey to these things. Yes. And there was a, you know, they manufactured consensus through the kinds of campaign, the, the campaign that you are speaking of, and by silencing any resistors, including doctors. that That's an important aspect of it because then they could say, oh, look, this is the consensus. This is the science. This is the consensus. So you'd have to be an idiot not to follow along. And so all of these people who had questioned forever didn't question anything in this instance. And of course, now I question everything and I don't ever want to do anything that anyone tells me I have to do again, um, just on principle. Um, But I I think the thing I've learned is people really are not loyal to any sort of principles. They want to fit with the group. They they are largely obedient. Um, They might, you know, they might espouse certain principles, but they really don't hold fast to them and they certainly aren't willing to sacrifice anything um to uphold those principles if i had a dollar for every person who said well i just got it because i want to travel i or go to the bar or go to the club or yeah exactly because it's convenient i just think to myself yeah wow just wow yeah the other thing i've heard so frequently like someone wrote on my do you remember when Ed Snowden came out and he exposed the whole PRISM program where the government's spying on us, which is a violation of many of our um, constitutionally protected rights, like um, against unlawful search and seizure and all sorts of things like this, um, warrantless seizure. Um, I posted about this and I said, you know, this should terrify all Americans on Facebook. And one of my childhood friends wrote back and said, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. What do I care? And I thought, wow, you have no idea that this is exactly how tyranny has been installed in so many countries all over the world, because the good, the compliant, it's just the same with gun laws, right? Well, we're not, you know, the, um, the good, the people who are law abiding, the, the people who go and get their arms lawfully, they're not the problems, right? <laughs> It's so crazy, but people just twist it. They don't understand that these laws aren't there to protect you, the good people. They're to pro- they're they're even to protect anybody and everybody's right to free speech, to assemble all these things. But and they don't against the government. Most importantly, it is. But I I think the thing for me that's so alarming and something I saw, especially amongst younger people, people younger than me, millennials and and Gen Z, is I don't actually think they really value those freedoms. I think they're willing to trade them for a feeling of safety or um, to just be adherent to whatever the the rules are. I don't, and and I've had this conversation with a friend quite a bit. I she strongly believes that freedom will win out in the end, that that's an American ideal that we all believe in and that is important, not just here, but on the world stage. And if we, um, if we cave, then 
the hope for freedom, you know, beyond the United States is is really lost. But I I don't know how much people value it in in younger generations. They seem to all I, too Jennifer, willing. They don't. There's yeah. listen. Do you know who Yuri Bezmenov is? I sort of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he's this incredible guy who for, worked for the KB, KGB. So he was a Soviet KGB. Um, fairly senior in the KGB and he defected to the United States or to the West somewhere. And he has given all sorts of incredible interviews talking about how communist countries subvert the West and that it only takes one or two generations. And what they do is they essentially, he's like, Oh, you think it's all James Bond and, you know, high stakes spying. That's not what it is. It's subversion. And we do it through the schools. And so these kids who are, 30 and under 35 and under have been indoctrinated for a couple of generations by these absurd programs in our elementary schools and secondary schools. And worst of all, in our colleges, in our college campuses, Um, they are being taught socialism. They are, they're being taught Marxism. There's, there's, that's what's happening in this country. And if you look at what there's, there are many people who go and they interview these um, young people on college campuses, people like Will Witt, who used to work for Prager University, or um, Ami Horowitz. Oh my gosh, he does amazing things. Go on to Ami Horowitz and watch him. He'll go to college campuses in, I don't know, UC Irvine or UCLA or something like that. And and he'll ask them, you know, is voter ID racist? <laughs> and all the kids will be like, yes, it's racist. Oh, it's racist. And it's all these white kids saying that voter IDs are racist. And he asks them why. And he says, well, because, you know, minorities don't know how to get on the Internet. And they probably don't have a computer or a, um, they, don't, they don't have a driver's license because they don't know where the, the, the DMV is and all these things. And then he would go and go to... Harlem or something. And he would go walk around and he asked, Hey, do you guys carry ID? And they're like, yes. Do you know what the DMV is? Yeah. It's just over there on 121st and whatever, you know? And he said, what do you say to these kids who think that you don't know where the DMV is? What, what do you say to kids who think that, you know, the point is that these kids have been indoctrinated. They've not been educated and they don't believe in what we believe in. And so this is why I say that we are going to self-sort into those who believe in freedom and those who don't. And I mean, I will, I will be happy to eat my hat if it doesn't happen, but I see it happening where I just read a story the other day about someone who um, had a child, had two kids who were trans, identified as transgender, and they moved from their state to California or a state that was far more supportive of it. That's going to happen. Tons and tons of people have moved to Idaho who are fleeing these anti-family, as they see it, anti-family socialist policies of California and other states, it's happening already, whether we like it or not. And I think the the simple fact is, I'm actually working on a blog right now about what I used to believe. We don't share anything with these people anymore. We don't, you don't have a country if you don't have common ideals. And they don't believe in the, in freedom. They don't believe in bodily autonomy, except for abortion. They don't believe in, um, uh, self-sufficiency. They don't believe in freedom of speech. They believe in safe spaces and all these other things. And, and so when you're at that point, I think we have crossed the proverbial Rubicon and I don't really see us healing this wound. I think it's done. That's a downer. I, I, I'm not sorry to say it, but you know, but (laughs) but here's the, there's a silver lining. And that is that those places that are that, that don't want freedom, 
let them be. Yes, That's okay. I, the places that want it, I think yeah. will become blossoming, Freer. flourishing I think bastions of freedom. I think, I think there's a part of me that holds out hope that thinks, you know, and when I, as I watch the protests now, for instance, in China, like there is a limit to what pe- they think they may want this in the name of safety. But when it really happens, and when you really have no freedom, freedom to congregate, freedom to speak, freedom, bodily autonomy, they may not see it coming. But when it really happens, I have some hope that people will fight back and push back. If that doesn't happen, you're right. It will be divided and you can have it your way and you can live under house arrest and, you know, um, you know, stay home whenever you're told you have to stay home and not move freely and congregate and speak out on the things you care about. If that's how you want to live, I'm not going to live that way. And I'm not going to live around people that accept that. And so it very well may divide, but I, I hold out a bit more hope. You've been at this longer, so maybe you're a little more cynical. I hold out some hope. Um, that people won't tolerate it in the end. They think they want it, but they won't in the end. I don't know. I could very well be very wrong. Yeah. I read a, um, a, a was it a poll or a study or something, some report a couple of days ago about how 70% of children between the ages of 11 and 14 or so um, are extremely concerned about climate change and how this is being weaponized against them, right? So they're terrified. They are very alarmed. It's an existential threat to them. And I think that when you plant that in young people's brains, just like they planted fear of killing grandmother in people's, in children's brains, it has a long lasting and very um, insidious effect, which is to you know, it, it basically takes you into your reptilian yeah. brain, right? It, it reduces when you're in your reptilian brain, which is all about fight or flight, then you're um, all of your elements of higher functioning, cognitive reasoning are shut that down one. and you're only in that place. And so if kids grow up in that kind of environment, it's very, very hard for them to go back into a place of expansiveness and openness and, Hey, you do you and I'll do me. It's um, no, I listen, think that's right. On a, on a, on a more, Oh, I was going to say, we've also sent, and this is what had me a lot so alarmed. We sent kids the message they didn't matter, that they were inessential, that their futures didn't matter, that their well-being didn't matter, that they were here as, you know, um, you know, their sole purpose was to protect others. As they were human to shields, Jennifer. Yes. Never before in our history have children Never. been used as human shields. It is one of the most despicable aspects of what's happened in the last two and a half years that literally school boards, city council members used these children to protect adults when these children had no risk. It's disgusting. Yeah. So let's let's turn to something exciting, which is your okay. documentary. Tell us yeah. about your documentary before we wrap up. Yeah, so I'm making a film. Um, I, I made a documentary about the abuse in the world of gymnastics called Athlete Day, which is on Netflix and won an Emmy. I'm making one now about the harms and the impacts to children from the prolonged school closures as well as other restrictions. Um, and we've been following kids and families from various states across the, uh, the country. We've got a couple of kids in New York, California. Um, we have tended to focus on kids in states where um, the schools were closed the longest because that's where we see the most adverse impacts. Although I will tell you the kids in other states have really suffered as well because there were restrictions 
that went on and on and on, even in the States where schools open sooner. Um, and so we're just filming to see how it plays out. And I will tell you, the kids are not all right. You know, um, they're not. They continue to suffer. Dropout rates are high. Chronic absenteeism is as high as 40% in major cities across the country. There are public schools in San Francisco. Chronic absenteeism is 90%. 90% of the children in some of the lower income high schools are absent more than 10% of the time. I mean, it's an alarming statistic, which just says to me, the dropout rates are just going to continue because the children have disengaged. Mm -hmm. um, we all know the mental health impacts. I, I read a, a statistic the other day, we need five times more mental health practitioners for youth than there are in this country, given the volume of challenges. Um, we've uh, talked to families where um, the children had, you know, complete mental health breakdowns and were hospitalized. We have families where the children overdosed. Um, we have it just the stories go on and on. But, you know, I think the everyday stories that are less catastrophic in a sense, but are more representative of what kids went through, these kids that just suffered weight gain and um, disengaged from school entirely. I mean, they just didn't do it. Who can do it? you know, go to school for eight hours a day on a computer. And now they're really struggling to figure out what's next. Their grades drop precipitously. Um, there was no sports for kids. There were kids dependent on college scholarships that come from low income family who now have no idea what they're going to do because they couldn't play their last two years of high school and they can't afford college. So we want to show the full breadth of experience. And we also want to get at some of these other issues, you know, the censorship that allowed for this manufactured consensus, the demonization of parents, um, the exertion of control by public health and government leaders and the teachers unions pernicious influence. So all of that, those are all themes in the film. Uh, but the children are the heartbeat of the movie. Sounds fantastic, Jennifer. Now, what's the schedule for it? Um, we have probably shot about 75% of it. So we're going to wrap up filming in the next few months and then start the editing process. So I'm hoping by um, the end of next year. It's a long process. That's fantastic. Thank that's really you. exciting. Um, is we it want a record. Sorry, that's what the last thing I was just add is there needs to be a record of what happened to these kids because it's already being swept under the rug. You know, leaders are saying, you know, Governor Whitmer is saying schools were only closed three months. That's a lie. Um, Randy Weingarten is saying she had nothing to do with it. Fauci is saying he had nothing to do with it. Everyone's acknowledging that it was awful, but they're acting like no one did it. These were policies that were made by people. The governor of Idaho, who is a supposedly a Republican, says that he never locked down the state, that he never ish, issued any lockdown order. There was a stay at home order. There was a no gathering with more than 10 people. There was all sorts of things. But these they're just this is why Lying. I say I don't care if they're from the left or the right. They are literally bald faced liars, liars who will do anything and everything they can to stay in power and to try and subjugate us. And I know that's a really cheery note to end on. So let's try and find a cheery note. What inspires well, yeah. you about your experience, Jennifer? I am inspired by the people who have been willing to speak out and continue to, despite um, the name calling, the job loss, the friend loss, the family fracturing. Like there are people who are so brave and so courageous. And I really do believe courage begets courage. And I think it really 
sucks, frankly, to put yourself out there first and 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 be the the target of that demonization. But it has to be done because truth is literally on the truth and freedom. I really believe it. It sounds dramatic, but I know you agree are on the line. And I think courageous people can bring others along. And I have faith ultimately um, that we can do it, but we have to be relentless in the yeah. pursuit of truth and freedom. Yeah, I saw um, uh, a little meme the other day that said the difference between you and me is that I didn't get the shot and you hoped I would die and you did get the shot and I prayed that you would live. And I think it really speaks to this, um, this goodwill. These people who chose not to get it, they didn't mean any ill to anybody, right? The people who fought back, they wanted what's best for everybody. They wanted a better place. They wanted American ideals to flourish. They wanted to respect one another. They wanted individual choices, which has always been the American way. And and they were willing to stand for. And I think they have woken up so many people in the process. They've inspired so many people. And that to me is the silver lining of everything that we've experienced is that our ranks of those who were, you know, quote unquote, anti these before yeah, um, who just questioned them has expanded by tens of millions to people now who are really wondering I think what is right. this all about and is it right? And so to me, there's the potential for a true rebirth. Movement. I think so. Freedom in this country, however it shapes. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, you know, that inspires me because I've met so many brave people who have risked so much um, and they keep going. They're tireless. And that's completely, I mean, it's utterly inspiring, you know? So I'm left with that when I have a hard day, I think about the brave people that I've met along the way. So do I. They inspire me every day. Well, listen, Jennifer, thank you so much for being with me. Will you tell all, all of our um, audience where they can find you, where they can find your book, your Substack, and anything yep. else like that? Yeah, um, I'm an active Twitter user. You know, that's what kind of brought me down, I'll say. <laughs> you can find me at Jennifer Say. My last name is S-E-Y. Um, I write a Substack called Say Everything. Again, S-E-Y. Um, and the book is available where books are sold. So Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. You can buy it direct from the publisher, which I recommend at Levi's Unbuttoned. Tell us the, the title again is un, Levi's Unbuttoned. Levi's, Levi's Unbuttoned. And um, you can go right to levisunbuttoned.com and buy direct from the publisher. Um, it's available where ebooks are sold if you prefer digital. And the audio book is coming out any minute. And I did the narration. Um, which may or may not be a good thing, but um, that'll be available where audiobooks are sold, uh, Audible, Amazon, et cetera, in, in, a, in a day or two. Well, Jennifer, let me just say thank you again for being with us. And mo- thank you most importantly for taking a stand, for being um, you know, courageous in the face of true loss of your career, something you'd work for your whole life, and for being a beacon of light to so many um, Americans. We are so grateful and inspired by your work. Well, thank you for absolutely doing the same and starting on this journey well before me. I really um, I admire everything you've done and continue to do. Thanks so much. 